Good evening, and welcome to the Sovereign Grace Apologetics Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher. Tonight, we have a very special program for you, in which I will be discussing the philosophy known as deism. Many of you probably are not aware of the philosophical or worldview of deism. However, if you were to read uh, numerous individuals throughout our history, men such as Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and even an individual by the name of Thomas Paine, who wrote a pamphlet entitled The Age of Reason. If uh, you have never heard about deism, well, today this program will be deal with specifically with that issue. As well, um, after, during this program, I will also be taking Q&A questions, which many of you have already sent, so I will be answering those as well. So, welcome to the podcast, and uh, enjoy uh, listening to the program. To begin... What exactly is deism? How is it defined? What are its core beliefs? And what should be the Christian response to this worldview? I will seek to critique, I'm seeking to critique this worldview through a presuppositional method in which the question is, does this worldview comport with reality? Is it consistent in what it believes? What are its major inconsistencies to show that as a worldview, it does not hold up to its own standard? That is the purpose for today's, pro- today's program, and this is how we are going to seek to answer the various claims of deism, and for even in some cases providing a biblical response to its claims. To begin... What is deism by definition? Deism is defined as the belief that reason and the natural world are sufficient to determine the existence of God. Deists believe God is not knowable and untouchable. God is seen as the first cause of all creation, but in counterdistinction, to which, in Christianity, God also relates to his creation and has a personal relationship, the deist does not see God as being active in that sense, that he doesn't interact with his creation. A good analogy of this would be, for example, that where God God takes a, a watch, or a clock, excuse me, and winds it up. It pretty much lets it take its course and just leaves it to be in its own state. He doesn't interact with it. He really has no causal relationship to the watch that he has created and wound up in letting it go its natural course. Um, God, again, this goes back to the principle of the analogy of the watch, that yes, God does create. God is seen in deism as the first cause of all creation, but he's not interactive with creation. Um, The analogy, again, is think of a god as a watchmaker that winds up a clock by setting up the creation process that is guided by natural laws, 
which can only be known through our own reason and logic. This is how God apparently is known, according to the deistic philosophy. In addition, the following are some other beliefs that are related to uh, deism as a worldview. Point number one, the rejection of divine revelation, because it cannot tell us anything about God. In other words, any idea of the miraculous or that God has intervened in any point in history is outright rejected. Number two, another core belief of deism. Quote, a belief in God is based on reason and our understanding of nature. We deduce this from our own experience and the observations of which we see within nature itself. So by nature, by looking into nature and our own personal experience, this is how we know the basis for the existence of God. Number three, man cannot have a personal relationship with God. However, we can have feelings of awe within our own our own being. We can look at creation and have this transcendent, all-expiring, all-inspired feeling that there is a God. So it would seem it's almost as if it's a little bit mystical that we can relate to God just based upon our own subjective and personal experience. Number four, humans have the ability to use reason to arrive at moral principles that create a utilitarian humanistic form of ethics. What I mean by utilitarian is that which, of course, brings the greatest happiness to us as an ultimate fulfillment. And the good that we do is for the greatest amount of people. If it brings happiness and stability to the greatest amount of people, it's an ethical principle that should be followed. Number five. As stated with number one's objection, or, or view of deism, that uh, it rejects divine revelation because it cannot tell us anything about God. Deists reject divine revelation in holy writings or holy texts, such as the Bible, the Quran, and the Torah, as well as other religious texts and creeds found in all major world religions. It is up to the individuals to determine how we should honor and obey God. Number five. All men and women in society are created equal according to natural law. In other words, according to natural law, we're all created equal. Um, unfortunately, this is problematic, which we will get into in our critique on how you can merely assert that someone's created by a law, which of course is impersonal. You cannot have a relationship with an impersonal thing. We are persons, therefore we have personal relationships 
with those things that are related to us. Impersonal things cannot have those types of relationships. So, we will get into that in our critique here in just a little bit. Number six, reason and respect is a gift from God, which is to be used of men. Okay. So we have covered the basis of deism, of its beliefs. Just to reiterate, it entails the rejection of divine revelation, because it does not tell us anything about God. The belief that God is based on our reason and understanding of the natural world. And therefore, we uh, conclude from that, that our experience, and from our experiences, that God exists. Three, that man cannot have a personal relationship with God. But we can yet have feelings of all within the human soul, within creation, that seemingly point to his existence. Four, humans have the ability to use reason to arrive at moral principles that create utilitarian humanistic forms of ethics. And as I said, that basically means that brings us the greatest good for the greatest amount of people. It's overall a pleasure principle, one that brings our own self-fulfillment, if you will. Deists reject divine revelation and holy writings such as the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, and other religious texts and creeds. It is up to the individualistic's own experiences, their own reason, and how we determine in which we honor God. All men, as point five has stated, all men in society are created equal according to the philosophy known as natural law. Six, reason and respect are, of course, a gift of God from which, we are to, which, are, which is used by men. Now, having covered those issues, let's sort of move into the critique of their position. Point number one, the rejection of divine revelation because it not tell, cannot tell us anything about God. The first problem with this position to the question is, how does a deist know this? Given in our introduction of the various points of deism, we see according to their beliefs that God is neither knowable nor can he be defined. How does the deist know that God has not given divine revelation to creation? Is, this, is the deist somehow more all-knowing and all-powerful than God himself? To make the claim, the deist has to know something about God to reject this claim. And as we saw in the various points, God is neither knowable nor can be defined. The problem with this argument is that it violates the very principle. God is neither knowable nor can be defined, but yet, according to deism, God is defined in terms that he created all things, but yet stepped back, stood back, within his creation and does not interact. It also violates the principle of point number two, that belief of God is based on reason and understanding of nature and based upon our experience and observance of nature. And yet this is, according to deists, how we come to know God. We also know God, not through personal relationship, but through our feelings of all within the human soul and his creation. And so... In that sense, in deism, we can have a knowledge of God, but apparently according to the principles of the laws of nature, 
So this very principle is self-contradictory and violates its own its own view. Um, and so that's the problem with point number one, is that it has a set principle that God, they can know that God is unknowable, but yet they can know God through the use of their reason and through what they see in nature to do to reduce deduce from the fact that God exists. Point number two. This ties into that principle. A belief in God is based on reason and an understanding of nature. It is deduced from one's principal experience in the observance of nature. The question we have to ask ourselves, the deist has to ask themselves, by its own presuppositions, how does a deist know that his reasoning is valid? They have to presuppose it in order for it to be valid. The question is, is it possible that the deist can be wrong about everything he claims to know about God and nature? Second, nature only tells us that God created the universe. It does not answer the question of how, why, and the purposes of creation. It is a belief in God. If a belief in God is deduced from personal experience, how does the deist know his or her experiences in observance of nature is valid? and not prone to self-deception. Maybe their experiences are an illusion, created by acid trips, or perhaps for another reality, um, they feel as they're being strapped down in a psych ward somewhere. How do they know that their experience of God is really true? If it's only based on reason, or it's based on nature, how do they know it's valid? Because we know that our, re our reason is faulty. We know that... Um, you know, people who take certain drugs think they're in a reality that does not exist. For example, as I said in this, like I had said, that you could be strapped down in a psych ward somewhere, and yet you may think that, I don't know, you're in another place. You could be strapped down in a psych ward and thinking that, and also thinking at the same time that, uh, I don't know, you're visiting the Eiffel Tower in Paris, France. But of course, you may assume that, but, in your experiences may assume that, but that does not make it reality. So that is the question the DS has to ask themselves. By what standard do they judge nature? By what standard do they judge their own reason, given that their reason can be faulty and prone to self-deception? What outside source, as opposed to themselves, nature and intuition, can they come to the conclusion that what they're experiencing is a true... Uh, worldview that they're experiencing what it, what they're experiencing is of God. We know this biblically, how our own senses and our own reason can be prone to self-deception. As it says in Scripture in Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is desperately wicked and sinful, and it's sick. Who can know it? We're also told in the book of Proverbs, he that trusteth in his heart, his own heart is a fool. Now, of course, what does Scripture say? Scripture tells us, in Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. That, our, that reason and knowledge are given to us by God. They're not something simply that uh, we just happen to come to by ourselves. Rather, they are tools by God given to us 
in order to utilize his creation and to know him. Although very limited. This is why, according to scripture, that while God, scripture testifies that God created the heavens and the earth, that really does not answer the question of which we can have a personal relationship with him. This is why divine revelation is important. And this is why, if we seek to have any relationship with God, it is found within him, within the person of Jesus Christ. But since deism rejects any type of personal relationship with God, let alone that God has sent his son Jesus Christ in order that we may have relationship with him and forgiveness of sin, deism cannot answer this question, and it outright rejects the Christian principle of general revelation, God's creation, and the divine revelation found in the person of Jesus Christ. So they cannot, they cannot really answer the standard of their own experiences and their own observances apart from these two principles coexisting. Number three. Man cannot have a personal relationship with God, but can have feelings of awe within the human soul, human soul and his creation. The deist claims we cannot have a personal relationship with God, yet again, this is an absolute claim that he knows something about God that cannot be known. After the all, the deist rejects divine revelation. The deist is appealing to their own subjective experiences and feelings as a form of truth. How do they know that these ideas are valid? Once again, this goes back to the principle. They cannot know God, but yet they know that they cannot really know anything about God, except which is given by their own experiences, what they see in nature. So that is to say they know something about God. And although they don't want to admit it, they have some sort of relationship with God, although not in the biblical same, same biblical sense of divine revelation. But in some way they can connect to God through their personal experiences and even through nature. Which of course almost sounds very pantheistic. And in some cases it is. Um, in point number four of Deus's, the deist view that humans have the ability to use reason to arrive at moral principles which creates a utilitarian humanistic form of ethics. The problem with the deist view of ethics is this. It's simply just a appeal to Mormon relative, moral relativism. Moral relativism basically meaning that morals are relative uh, to each person. What you think is wrong is wrong. What you think is right is right. You know, who are you to impose your morality on me? If I think it's wrong to beat somebody up, you have the same uh, ethical principle in which you could say that beating up somebody is okay to do. Every anything, er, In other words, morals comes down to one's own personal preferences and what they think is true. But yet, this very statement that humans have the ability to reason and arrive at moral principles which creates a humanistic ethic, this is an absolute truth claim. 
It is the claim that humans have the ability to reason and arrive at those principles. To appeal to this sort of utilitarian ethic is to say what is true for you is for you. And what is not true for me is true for me. Or to actually say what is true for you is true for you. I may not think it's true, but it is true for you nonetheless. We each, in a sense, have our own truth, as subjective as it is. But for example, but not for me, and what feels good for you, uh, you are to follow your own reason and instincts. If you feel it's wrong, then it's wrong for you. If, you, I, if I feel something is right, it's right for me. Who are you to instill your moral principles upon me? If this is the case, then we are no better to follow the moral principles of, say, Jeffrey Dahmer, in which we engage in psychopathic behavior. In this case, Jeffrey Dahmer engaged in the, the practice of cannibalism because he felt it was a moral thing to do. And possibly in the case of utilitarian ethic, it brought him the great, one of the greatest amounts of happiness. We may not approve of it, but again, given that morality is subjective, we may not like it, but it's because of our own personal preference. So, who are we to say that moral uh, that Mr. Jeffrey Dahmer was wrong, based upon that morality is relative? He was just following his own ethic, just as you and I follow our own ethic. So we have a problem there. There really is no difference, per se, between that of Jeffrey Dahmer, who is a psychopathic cannibal, eating someone, or say a person who is virtuous of, say, Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr. Ideas, in essence, cannot say that these actions are right or wrong, since morals are left up to the individual's choice to follow them or not to follow them, based upon nature, based upon their own reason and instinct. So, it makes moral claims, while at the same time same time denying moral claims and they are making absolute statements so in other words they take something that is subjective and is and makes it an ought as if there's some moral obligation but given that morality is relative what moral obligation do I have or you to have to do anything this moves into the next problem of deism Deism rejects divine revelation and holy writings, the Bible, the Torah, and other religious texts. And it's up to us individuals to determine what God is and how to honor Him. The problem here is that since deists reject divine revelation and substitutes it for reason, how does he know anything about God at all? And how does he know that their reasoning is valid, as previously stated? Though the deist rejects divine revelation and holy writings, deism does indeed have a creed. A creed is defined as, quote, any system, doctrine, or formula of religious belief, as of in the case of a denomination, or two, any system or codification of belief or of an opinion. Deists do indeed have a creed in that sense. They have a belief about God, that he exists, even though he does not interact with his creation. They have an idea about nature, 
in that we can derive the principles about uh, de derive our moral principles from nature, and that in some cases, God can be be, no be made known through nature. They have a view of reality. They have a view. They have a uh, view of knowledge, of course, which is based on the principle that we can know God simply through our reason. And they even make certain truth claims while saying that morality is defined of what we of what we see it is and of course is defining God as the way we see him and we choose the way in which we honor him. But yet these are truth claims being made despite the fact that they want to assert that this is all subjective. So it's a self-refuting argument. Um... In other words, to put it in more simple terms, it is to say you hold to no creed, but yet it's a creed within and of itself. Because as noted, a creed is a statement of belief about something. If deists don't believe in creeds, then why even hold the deism? Why hold the worldview that you do? It's a sign of inconsistency. Point number six, we see that according to the natural law of deism, that all men and women are, in society are created as equal. The problem, however, is how does a deist know that all men, women, and society are created equal according to natural law? As we saw in point four of the issue, moral principles are subjective and it's up to the individual to decide what is moral and ethical. What natural law is the deist appealing to? There are actually various appeal, various uh, theories of natural law. So, and the other problem is, how can you derive a principle from an impersonal thing? Laws, in and of themselves, do not do anything. Rather, they are prescribed. In this case, a lawgiver. There are certain precepts and moral principles that a person does follow. But they are prescriptive of a uh, they are descriptive of that which is given by a lawgiver. A law is nothing in of itself unless it's derived from someone who has written this law and these moral principles. You cannot have um, given that deism holds that God is known by nature, in nature, you're basically trying to personify an impersonal being, personal thing, into a personal thing. It says, in other words, you're basically, as the Bible says, you're deifying creation, as we're warned about in Romans chapter 1, that um, they worship the creature rather than the creator. They deify nature rather than seeking the one who has created nature. And they make it an idol. So that's the problem with this issue of natural law. Yes, God has created the heavens and the earth and so on for his glory, as Roman, as Psalm 19.1 says. But, while creation is good, we are warned not to deify creation. And it is in this sense that deism has done that very thing. Finally, in point seven, 
we see reason and respect as a gift from God, which are to be used in men. The question for the deist is this. How do they know that their reason is in, in that the, excuse me, how does a deist know that reason and respect is a gift of God? How would they define them in their deistic worldview? How do they know that their reasoning is valid? Why should we respect others given that morality is subjective to the choice of the individual? You see, that's the problem. That while the point of deism in this respect is biblical in a sense. Proverbs 1 says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. No Christian would deny that reason is a gift of God. God has created us with reasoning capabilities and to understand. But at the same time, we recognize, due to the fall, that our reasoning is not always sound. That we can be self-deceived. And that um, if we choose to go our own way, it's going to create all types of problems. This is why God you know, gives us divine revelation through the power of His Holy Spirit that our mind needs to be renewed. It needs to be recreated. It needs to walk in the newness of life and in truth. And this can only come about by God's saving grace in Jesus Christ and through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in which our blind eyes are opened and He softens our heart so that we are made willing to walk in His ways and his statutes, and that we serve him with godliness and humility. As Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're not to walk in the ways of the of the old of the ways of the the pagan world, but we're to to walk in the newness of mind. As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, quote, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we see in Scripture that yes, God has given us reason. He has given us the ability to think. However, this has become corrupted due to the nature of the fall. And therefore, our minds need to be renewed in order which brings glory and honor to God. And so, therefore, when we look down into the issue of deist, to reiterate the point, we as Christians, do we agree that God has given us reason and understanding? Yes. Proverbs 1 7, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We're to be renewed in the renewing of our mind and transformed. We also agree with the deist that, in fact, Humans are created in the image of God in, the, in that sense. 
since they say all men and women in society are created equal, according to natural law. Well, men and women are created equal, but in the eyes of God himself. As it says in Genesis that God created man and woman, him he created them. So yes, men and women are equal because they bear the image of God not simply because of a so-called natural law which is an impersonal be which is impersonal as opposed to God who is personal and so and then in, we also would agree that man while we the deist would say we cannot have a personal relationship with God but we can have feelings of awe within the human soul in his creation again Yes, we do have, can have awe. We can be inspired by His creation. Because again, we are created in His image. As the psalm says, Taste and see that indeed the Lord is good. So yes, we can look at awe in our creation. We can be inspired by God's creation. As the psalmist says in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God. However, we are again told not to worship creation. We are not to worship creation itself because creation testifies. It points to God as the creator. It's simply a sign. It's a symbol that points to something greater than itself. It points to the one who has made creation. And so, when we look at overall the issue of deism, what we tend to find, according to this worldview, is that deism rejects God's divine revelation, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ, which is the fullness of that revelation. It rejects the idea that our reason has been tainted, it's fallen, it's fallible, and that it needs to be renewed. It rejects the idea that man really has been created in the image of God, in one sense, it affirms that man has been created in the image of God by giving us reason and the ability to think. But yet, deism in of itself does not honor God because it looks to reason and it looks to within the self to derive that revelation about God. It is, as Paul once again says, the worship of the creature rather than the creator. It is to be in favor of human autonomy and to look within yourself to find the revelation of God to look within the so-called created order as the truth about God rather than looking to the fact that creation testifies to God himself we're not simply to look at creation itself but look to the one who has created it it is the sign it is the post that points us that points us to the greater reality and when we look in the life of Jesus Christ himself, who is the very image of God, we see the fullness of that. And this is something that deism rejects. So therefore, in conclusion, deism relies on one thing alone. The human, the human, the worship of humans, the human autonomy that somehow I can arrive to God by my own way, by what I see in nature, by what I think, by what I feel, my intuition, my feelings. 
and by my own reason. That's what deism comes down to according to Romans 21-28. through But yet, in some sense, yes, the deist is correct that they can know. The reason that a deist can know anything about God is because it recognizes in this sense that God has written the law upon their hearts. But because it seeks, it seeks its own truth apart from God, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They recognize the creation. They recognize their ability to reason. They recognize their ability to be an awe-inspired of God's creation. But yet they deny the very one who has created these things. More so, they deny the perfect fullness of God's revelation found in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is upon this biblical basis, upon its, on one hand, accepting God's general revelation, but also rejecting His divine revelation, rejecting that God has God's ability to communicate with man. We see in Scripture that God communicates both verbally and non-verbally. He does so ver- non-verbally through His creation, but He also communicates verbally because He gave man the ability to write these things down in order to describe His creation. God does speak verbally. As well as non-verbally, the biblical scriptures balance these things out. However, deism rejects one while accepts the other and tries to pit the two against one another. And therefore, deism must be rejected as a perversion of Christianity, a perversion of the biblical worldview that rejects God's power to communicate to creation and in reality sets man up as the final arbiter and standard of truth. And so we will now move on to the next segment of our podcast, which will be the Q&A section. Some of you had sent in some questions for my pot for the podcast. And so within the next few minutes for the next few minutes I will try to answer to the best of my ability. So let's go ahead and look at some of the questions here. Um some of you posted the questions over in Discord so uh let's go ahead and look over here some of your questions. Okay. The first question comes in from Stephen, who asks, Is the Arminian my brother in Christ? Well, you'll usually get two answers to that question, more so from those who call themselves hyper-Calvinist or high-Calvinist who would outright say no. The Arminian is not my brother. Well, On the other hand, you do have those who will say the Arminian is my brother. I think the question boils down to this in answering the statement. Does the Arminian trust in 
Christ alone for his or her salvation? If they do, then I would say, yes, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are saved despite some of the faultiness in their thinking. Do they believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do they believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that He is the Savior and Messiah, who is the Word manifested in flesh? Are they trusting in that alone for their salvation? If they are, then yes, I will have to say that indeed the Arminian is my brother, even though we may disagree on some peripheral issues. As long as these orthodox biblical teachings are maintained, these ones that I have listed in principle, then yes, I will say that the Arminian is indeed my brother in Christ, as long as they are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. So yes, I would affirm this to be the case. Caden um, comes at us with a question by asking, What is your best argument for the existence of God? Well, that would depend on your view uh, of apologetic. Because there are various evidences you could use to say for the argument of the existence of God. You can look at the natural created order in realizing that science operates on a principle of cause and effect, that there has to be a cause of the universe to come to existence, and of course that there's an effect to that cause. We know that the universe is not eternal, so there has to be something that brings it into existence. It's interesting how when you look at certain atheistic arguments, they will say that the universe is eternal, but yet, they'll turn around and say uh, that it is wrong for God to have always existed. The problem is, of course, is that, in, in a sense, people who make an argument are actually taking that which is of nature, i.e. matter and so forth, and actually deifying it. And again, this goes back to the, quest, to the issue of what Paul said in Romans 1. They worship the creator, or excuse me, they worship the creation, rather than the Creator. So, when you deal with scientific arguments, you can go that route and say, well, the universe has not always existed. There had to be a creation. There had to be something that brought it into existence. Okay, so you have that argument. You can also go through the issues of um, the fact that uh, Apart from knowledge, from the knowledge of God, you really can't know anything. Now, of course, and this is more the presuppositional method. Now, of course, we're not saying that the atheist or the non-believer doesn't know anything. They do know things, because God has written his law upon their hearts to where they know these things. The problem is, they have no way to account for why they believe what they do. And instead of acknowledging God as the creator and the giver of gifts to these things, they want to find some other source, whether it's inside themselves or their experience, etc. So, um, you can deal with moral issues, the moral argument that uh, believers can know things and that they can be moral because God's law is written upon their hearts, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, 
those are just some arguments that you can uh, use. And, uh, of course, you know, like I said, apart from God, you really can't know anything. But uh, this boils down to the unbeliever can know things. It's like as Van Til said, unbelievers can count, but they cannot account for their counting. In other words, they know these things to be true. They just don't have a firm foundation of its source. And so, that's where the problem lies. And so, in those cases, I would say that those are two good arguments, or three arguments to use for the existence of God. Um, uh, I usually tend to use various evidences, scientific, moral arguments, and the presuppositional method in which uh, these worldviews uh, must account for their use of reason and, and for knowledge of truth. And so that's, um, if you want to describe my position and the best argument for the existence of God, I, I take sort of a, an, an eclectic view where I try to combine some issues of evidentialism with uh, presuppositionalism in those various types of arguments. So um, I wouldn't say that there's one best argument for the existence of God. There's various ones you can use. So... Um, thank you for the question, Caden. I hope I did answer to the best of my ability, and if you want to discuss it more, uh, free, feel, free, feel, feel free to um, inquire and text and send me inquire about it. So thank you, Caden. And of course, thank you, Stephen, for your question as well. Um, we have three questions here from a friend of mine. Uh, Isaiah. Isaiah has sent in three questions. The first question he asks is uh, more of a personal nature rather than a theological one. And his question is, what is it like being a seminary student? Well, that's a very interesting uh, statement. What's it like being a seminary student? Well, <sighs> to be honest, it's sometimes it's kind of mixed. I enjoy studying God's Word. I enjoy uh, learning about the the various men throughout history He has given us to espouse His truth and the preaching of His Word and to, of course, giving us ways to defend the faith that um, He has uh, brought things to our lives so that we can grow in the knowledge of Him. As a seminary student, I enjoy, you know, the the life of being educated in God's Word and to, to be edified by His Word and, of course, in fellow, be in fellowship with those who who put their trust in Him. Um, I'm blessed that God has given me wisdom and understanding to better understand His Word and through the through His Scriptures and through the person of Jesus Christ, even as perfect and perfect as I am. I'm blessed to be given the opportunity to even attend seminary so that I may be equipped to teach uh, and share God's Word with others, because while some may think the idea is that uh, defending the faith and the teaching of Scripture is simply for the pastors and the, lay and the, um, and the laity alone, we see that is not the case. As it says in Ephesians 4.11, Paul tells us that he has given us various leaders within the church, but at the same time, 
uh, in verse 12 of Ephesians 4. He said he's also given it for the benefit of the layman to, to, that these people have been put in a place to equip us as fellow believers to be built up in the edification and to grow in the body of Christ. It's not simply something that is left to so-called scholars, but uh, that we that the church is to equip us to also proclaim his word, to edify other saints, to build each other up, to grow in our own personal relationship with God, and to, of course, defend the faith which is once delivered to the saints, as it says in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, and to be ready to give an account of the things asked of us by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts, and to give an answer with gentleness and respect, as it says in 1 Peter three fifteen. And so, those have been the blessings that I have had as a seminary student, although it is stressful at times. Because I know that, as Scripture tells us in the terms of Solomon, that with much learning comes much grief. To, uh, you know, as he, to paraphrase, to the many of books, there is no end. So sometimes it can be quite grudging. But of course I have learned to balance that out um, with just personal time with God himself and to preach, to read, and study his word when I feel discouraged, when I feel like my time of, in, when I feel like the time in which I'm engaging these things becomes overwhelming. So, um, thank you for that question, Isaiah. You also have two more. Let's see. What is your favorite apologetic and and why? Well, it kind of goes back to what I had said to Caden, and of course in my critique of deism here where we apply God's word to the principle that you know according to presuppositionalism we start with God and we end with God as the foundation that man can know things certain things because God is written upon their hearts but yet their own thoughts their own inclinations suppress this truth and so it's unfortunate that um you have worldviews that, in some sense, accept God's revelation, but yet reject it in other senses. In other words, they have one piece of the puzzle, but they're missing the other piece. And this is kind of why that people are so double-minded. As Scripture says in the book of James, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And this is where the tension between that they know God, but in the sense they also reject Him, as it says in Romans 1, that they have this contention, this conflict within themselves where they accept things of God, but at the same time they reject God as being the author, as being the foundation uh, for why they can know some of the things that they know, even if it's imperfect, even if they have an imperfect understanding. God has given us things so that we can know Him, know him for certain. And so this is why I usually try to utilize the presuppositional method and of course, everything that we do, we must do to the glory of God. Eat, drink, and be merry. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. In other words, everything that we do when we defend the faith, when we bring forth evidence for God's truth, it must be in line with His Word and be interpreted in line of the biblical framework. Because apart from that, if we do not seek to honor Christ as Lord in our hearts, set Him apart, 
when we give an account, give a defense of the answer, when we give a defense of the thing asked of us, we are dishonoring Christ. And so that's usually the apologetic method that I use um, when uh, discussing the gospel with people. And of course, I give the gospel as well. It all ties in. I try not to leave anything out. So that's an answer to your second question, Isaiah. Finally, um, you ask, how long have I been a Christian? Well, in the true sense of the word, when, when really studying uh, the issue, I really have really come to know Christ really in a personal way for about seven years. As you know, there are many who have the experience of growing up in the church going through the motions, etc., but not really having a firm foundation, not really being taught what I believe, not really having someone to mentor me to grow in my faith in Jesus Christ, not really having a church, per se, to help teach me and equip me. And for the longest time, I didn't have that. And it was only within about seven years that, uh, you know, I came to a knowledge of, of Jesus Christ and His Word, you know, through much study and with the help of, of many along the way. Um, I wrote about this in one of my um, essays about how I came to, to the knowledge of God, and I, um, I put that, I document that in my, uh, in my post, which I'll, I may actually dedicate a program uh, to talking about that to give a more, you know more broad understanding of where uh, I have come from. Uh, a whole program may, be, may need to be dedicated to this. So I may uh, cover that in the, in the future podcast. So, um, yeah. Thank you for the questions, Isaiah. Um, I hope I answer to the best of my ability. Um, and then finally, we have a question from... Ekin76, who comes us to us with the question of, can you use the presuppositional method of apologetics against other religions like Islam or Roman or the Roman religion? And the answer is, is yes, you can. Um, as we did with deism, if you, in having listened to the program, you'll see how I've kind of done a line by line, you know, view of what they believe. I've done a critique of what they believe and show how it's inconsistent. Um, for example, when you talk about, uh, you know, Islam or so on, you know, we can simply look at the fact that in one sense, they deny that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Well, history tells us through various sources that Jesus Christ was indeed crucified on a Roman cross and actually died. Even the secular sources uh, will testify to that, and there are numerous of which I could list. But um, yeah, and the same thing goes for uh, Romanism, which would I'm not too acquainted with, so I would have to study more on the issue and then do a critique of that. But uh, yes, indeed, you can, Eakin, um, use the presuppositional method to critique other worldviews. And I did so with deism, and you can do it with others as well. And I may, um, in my Discord, provide you sources on how to do that. Or I may dedicate a program to presuppositional apologetics. So thank you, Egan, for your question. 
uh, although I may have not fully answered it, I will give you some insight because, unfortunately, uh, this a program would need to be dedicated to go in a little bit more detail. Um, so I hope at least I gave you the basic principle. So thank you. And um, let me see, any more questions? And what? Nope. So uh, it looks like everybody has sent in their questions for today. Um, thank you to all who sent in your questions, Isaiah, Stephen, Eakin, as well as Caden. I appreciate um, all the questions. Um, in my And also, I'm grateful that I've been given the ability to try to answer them, although I may have not provided an exhaustive answer. But I, I have tried my best to do so, and so hopefully that's sufficient. If not, I'll probably dedicate another podcast to where we can go into more detail. But uh, overall, uh, thank you for tuning into the program. I hope that this program has been edifying for you, in, in, in that if you ever encounter someone that has the deist worldview, you have the ability to biblically respond to them, and to show them uh, the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word and that his revelation is fully found in the person and work of Jesus Christ um, so thank you hope you've been edified and that uh, as the scripture says um, do everything to the glory of God um, whatever you do eat and drink do to the glory of God remember he is your, your, he is your portion remember he is your foundation for all wisdom and understanding. Seek Him. And of course, um, His providence and what He's done through the person of Jesus Christ. Study His Word. Imply it to the, apply it to the best of your ability. Seek wisdom of Him. And if you do lack wisdom, pray that He may grant you that wisdom. So until next time, God bless to all of you listeners. To the glory of God alone, sola de gloria. Stay blessed, keep God first, and be edified, and continue in your growings with the Lord Jesus Christ and in your relationship with Him. And also seek the good of others, your fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, that they may too be edified. Blessings, sola de gloria, and see you next time.